We are going through a relationship series that we call Relationships a Glorious Mess, and we're focusing on marriage um, again today. And if you are single or if you are a teenager and you're saying, well, I can check out, I don't really need to listen to this, no, you can't. Um, and it's, it's, it's because of this. I, I've been looking at cars. I do this often. It's um, just kind of fun for me. And whenever I look at a new car or a different car, and, and I'm attracted to it. I didn't. It, I find something happening as I study a car. I become drawn to it, and I find myself wanting it. Um, why? Because it's better than what I presently have. All right. And so that's how you can view it if you're single, um, or even if you're married. <laughs> um, in in marriage, we have so many, and in relationships, we have so many messages coming to us that are so bad that we need to have the right understanding of marriage so that we might be attracted and encouraged towards something right, true, and good. And so if you're not married or if you are married, that means all of us in this room, we need to hear this information uh, so that we might conform our minds and our hearts around something that is true and good and biblical. Um, Because we are created uh, for relationship with God and one another in His church and... um, in uh, marriage. So let's look at Genesis chapter 3, and we're going to see the dark side of marriage, I guess you could say, uh, in the first few verses. Now the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? The woman said to the serpent, We may eat fruit from the trees in the garden, but God did say you must not eat fruit from that tree or from the tree that is in the middle of the garden, and, it, and you must not touch it or you will die. You will not surely die, the serpent said to the woman, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be open and you'll be like God, knowing good and evil. When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom, uh, she thought God a fool. (laughs) She took some and ate it. That's really what's intended there. She also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate it. Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they realized they were naked, so they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. Then the man and his wife heard the sound of the, the Lord God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and they hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man, Where are you? He answered, I I heard you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid. And he said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree that I commanded you not to eat from? The man said, The woman you put here with me, she gave me some fruit from the tree, and I ate it. And the Lord God said to the woman, What is this you have done? And the woman said, The serpent deceived me, and I ate it. Let's pray. Lord God, We're still hiding. We're still full of fear. We're still blame shifting. We're still running. And we need you. We need you to call us home this morning that we might have the comfort and the power of the gospel to believe that you're a God that will take us back. That there is nothing we can do that can separate us from your love. But Father... We need relationships down here that, that give us something tangible 
that we might understand that love too, that we might be invited into something better. And, and so, God, we thank You for marriage and we thank You for the church. And, Father, I pray that as Your Word is preached this morning, that You would help us to draw near to one another and seeking to be naked and unashamed, seeking to be vulnerable and known. Father, may this place, may this body be a place that we can trust we're not going to be cast to the side if we're exposed as sinners. But, oh God, I pray that we will see that this is the body that you called us to come out of hiding and to draw near to you through one another. And, Father, I pray that you would help us in our marriages to do the same thing, for that's the relationship that is to reflect this relationship of you you and your church. God, we need you. Come, Holy Spirit. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. When our daughters were young, uh, when they were little girls, and um, either Rachel or myself would get sick, uh, we would kind of go into um, um, you know somewhat of a zone defense. We would send one, or, you know, one. We'd send uh, she would send me to bed, or I would send her to bed, and you know, to the bedroom if if she was sick or if I was sick, and say, "Look, I've got this." You know, uh, just just go to the bedroom, shut the door. We don't want to catch it, and and I'm going to take care of things. That was kind of the attitude. Well, I remember one time when both of us had a stomach virus at the same time. And it was bad. I mean, it was bad. Uh, you know, we, we, we both felt horrible. Uh, we were just miserable. And the person who felt the least nauseous in the moment was the one who took care of whatever needed to be cared for. And we just kind of hoped and prayed that nobody died in the process and the children survived this and we survived this and we can move on. We were both sick and hurting and we couldn't help each other. What Genesis 3 tells us is exactly that. The husband and the wife in every relationship is sick. There's not a well one and a sick one. There are two sick people in the relationship. And we need to understand that. You see, the, 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 the intimacy of Genesis 2.24 of Adam and Eve being naked and unashamed has now gone to being clothed in armor and ready for battle against each other. We're not naked and unashamed naturally because we're both sick and we're both hurting and we're, and we're both sinners. And so we're hiding and we have the armor around us and we come out and we're hurt and we're ready to fight because we are full of fear and full of shame. We saw last week that we weren't made for that. We were made for a covenant relationship. We were made for a relationship that sticks, that says, you show me the worst part of you and you will not be able to drive me away because we are covenanted together. We are glued together. We are bound together. We have cleaved to one another. You show me the worst and it will, might hurt me, it might devastate me, but it will not drive me away. I will love you. You see, marriage is a promise of future love. It's not just this uh, flighty, flitty feeling on the night of your wedding or the morning of your wedding. But it is a promise when you take those vows to love today and to love tomorrow and to love 30 years from then. 
It is a covenant relationship. That is what we are created for. It is the essence of Christianity. For God so loved the world. And who's the world? All of sin and fall short of the glory of God. God so loved His spouse. Why? Because He covenanted with His creation. His created people. I covenanted with you. I will not give up on you. For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that whosoever should believe in Him should not perish. It's what we deserve. But have everlasting life. For God didn't send His Son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through Him. That is what we are made for. Jesus is the lover of our souls. He, our husband, has absorbed our sin. We sin, and instead of throwing us out, He dies. My life for you, because you're my bride. I give myself that you might live, even if it causes my death. And that resonates because that's what we were made for. And we saw again last week that therefore God is in the worst marriage in the history of the world. It is with you and me. But He ain't going anywhere. Hallelujah. He is faithful and true. Isn't that beautiful? It's covenant love, covenant relationship that we have as Christians. But we have it with each other in the church and in marriage, that we might really experience it tangibly. I don't know love outside of my wife. And yet inside of this relationship of many years, she has taught me what love is. She has seen my worst. And I've told you a lot, but I hadn't told you everything. Believe me. She has seen it and she knows it and she's staying there. And she says, I still love you. And what that tells me, what that gives me a glimpse of, what that gives me a physical and emotional and spiritual experience of is God Himself. How beautiful is that? And I wish that was the end of the story, but it's not. There's Genesis chapter 3. <laughs> And instead of just learning about love and mercy and kindness and goodness, because we're both sinners and we're both sin-sick, we learn about hurt and betrayal and shame and brokenness and anger and impatience and criticalness. But we can't throw marriage away because it's what we were made for. See, see, that's the problem. Just like in the church, we can't just throw the church away because the church is bad and it's sinful. We've got to plug it out. Why? Because it's the bride of Christ. We've got to say, no, we're going to work. We're going to redeem it. We're going to be different. We're going to work at it. And that's marriage. We can't run from it. You see... Because we're sin-sick, we need marriage probably more now than we did before. I, I guarantee you, I need my wife when I'm sick, maybe more than when I'm not sick. <laughs> and so what we see in marriage is this. Sin deepens our need for covenant relationship, but at the same time drives us to reject covenant relationship. 
Sin drives us to reject the very thing we need, but we cannot live without relationship. So oftentimes we settle for sick relationships. God has called us to something better. And that's what I want to look at this morning. But we have to have a right understanding of what He calls us to this side of the fall and this side of heaven. So let's look at it. First of all, marriage always consists of two shame-sick people. Once Rachel and I, when we lived in Colorado and we came home uh, to visit, once we drove from Colorado to Memphis pretty much without talking. Uh, And we only talked in Tulsa, Oklahoma, because Ashley, our middle daughter, started crying. She was sitting in the car, and the the tension in the car and the, the friction between Rachel and myself was so bad, the silence was so piercing, that she started crying. No, not a word spoken. That this is the tension that existed in the garden. Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they realized they were naked. So they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. Then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and they hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. I don't remember what the issue was about, and I've tried to all week. I don't remember the particulars. But they don't even matter. Because what was it at, at the heart of it was shame. She said something or I said something and probably we both said something that exposed us as sinners. Exposed us as less than. Ex- showed our sin. And we as human beings in and of ourselves cannot handle the weight of that. And so we hide. You see... Adam and Eve did not hide because the other sinned against them. They hid because they saw that they were naked. They hid because they were exposed and they couldn't handle that. It wasn't the sin, it was the sin and the act of sinning that caused the shame and therefore the hiding from one another. That's why the smallest thing can set off a person. I mean, have you ever done that in marriage or, or, or dating or, or just, you know, relationship? Friends, you say something and then, boom, you're like, what is their problem? They need to take a chill pill. I mean, my goodness, what is their deal, you know? You've hit something in there. It's like going to the dentist. And, you know, the dentist has, has that little, that horrible, wretched little torture instrument, you know. Just poking at your teeth. And you're like, okay, all right, all right. And then all of a sudden, ah! They hit that nerve. And you just want to come out of the chair. That's what it is. You see, we hit nerves in each other. We don't even know it. We expose each other by things that we say. We, we kill, we kill our, our, our understanding or our perception of ourselves in relationship. And we are reacting against it. We just simply can't handle the weight of shame. Look at Lance Armstrong. I mean, everybody on his team pretty much said, The guy's doping! He was doping the whole time. 
Here's proof. Here's evidence. I mean, in labs it was proven. No, I didn't do it. I mean, where was that coming from? It's what we all do. I didn't say that. That's not how I acted. That's not really what I was thinking. You've misunderstood me. You know, it's defensive. Why? Because we so fear being exposed. Because we think if someone sees us, they're going to reject us. And so we hide. Shame is condemnation of self. Whereas guilt is about something you have done, shame is about who you are. It's not this sense, oh, that was a bad thing I did. But it's a sense, I am bad. And that's just too much to bear, especially in front of someone like your spouse whose approval and love and acceptance you so desperately want and need. That's where Adam and Eve were. They were exposed in front of each other as guilty sinners and shame kicked in, which incited their fear and their anger, and they started blaming each other. God comes in the garden, and buddy, they had already got their defense mapped out. Well, it was her fault. Matter of fact, it was your fault. This woman you put here with me, God. And then Eve said, well, it wasn't me, it was the serpent. I mean, both of them, instead of coming into confession, instead of owning up to their sin and vulnerability and intimacy, what do they do? They hide. And that's what I was doing that day. I was hiding behind anger. I was hiding behind uh, shame. And I was not going to let her win. I was not going to let her see who the real me is. And we can't, we just simply can't live that way. But the problem is, our shame is exposed in relationship. In fact, the closer the relationship, the more shame is going to be exposed. That's why marriage is so hard. You see... Married people go to community groups to escape the pressure of marriage. (laughs) I was thinking about that this week. I mean, you know, to go to a community group is almost relief. Because then you can see that there are other people that are sinning just like you, and it makes you feel a little better to go home to your own relationship. In marriage, you have someone who knows you better than anyone else, and that's wonderful, but it's also the biggest threat in the world. Because you want that person's love so bad. Shame sends us into hiding. We hide behind our strong personalities. We hide behind our our bubbly personality. Or we hide behind our introverted personality. We hide and we defend and we use anger and we use silence and we use quietness because we're not going to let the other person see who and what we really are. That's the allure of casual relationship. It's the allure of one-night stands. You know, I, I can have a one-night, I can have one-night, one sexual experience where I at least feel naked and unashamed. But the problem with that is the next morning or a few minutes later, you're abandoned and alone and the loneliness is worse than it was before. Because someone has said, now I know you, eh, I may or may not call you. And that's why divorce is so damaging and so devastating. They say, oh, it's the best thing for the children. That is garbage. Why? Because we were created for covenant relationship. The best thing for the children is repentance. The best thing for the the children is to stay and to be weak and to say, we need help. 
Shame makes life not about the other, but about us. And just because we're sick with our shame, we do think about other people, but we think about really how they can benefit us. I mean, why is it hard to love people you don't like? Because they don't do anything for you. (laughs) So here it is, relationally. Because of our shame, because of our sin, the single person says, what's wrong with me? The married person says, what's wrong with him or her? The group says, what's wrong with them? We all say, what's wrong with God? Got to be his fault. But the Bible says, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Dear friends, the problem is not out there. The problem is here. And so, marriage always consists of two shame-sick people, but marriage is meant to call us out of hiding. That is the purpose of marriage. It's, a be- it's beautiful. Marriage is meant to call us out of hiding. Rachel has asked me, I don't know how many times, before we go on a walk, to please lock the front door. And I'm a man. I don't need to lock the front door. I mean, I live in a safe neighborhood. I mean, nobody's going to get in my house. And if they do, I'll take care of them. I mean, that's how I'm thinking. That's what a stupid request. Lock the front door. So we go on a walk. We're heading back to the house, you know, and uh, you didn't lock the door again. And what do I do? Oh, I forgot. <laughs> I didn't forget. Uh, well, you could have locked it. You were the last one out. What's your problem? Ridiculous. I mean, what is that about? It's such a small issue. I'll tell you what it's about. I don't want to be found out to be the guy that cares so little about his wife that he won't even lock the front door. I don't want to be shamed. Well, this week, we took a walk. And I unlocked the front door. And we're on our way back. And we're about 20 yards from the front door. She said, do you have a key to unlock the front door? I said, no, I don't need a key. I didn't lock the front door. (laughs) She said, are you kidding me? And this time, and maybe because I was working on the sermon, maybe because the gospel was fresh. I mean, and I'm telling you, this is years. I said, I just started smiling. I said, you got it. I got nothing. I got no defense. You're right. I'm so sorry. And you know what she said? She said, now that works for me. <laughs> and my first thought was, that's, that's how easy it is? <laughs> that's all I got to do? Just be honest? <clears throat> she said, Richard, when you defend yourself, I know what you're thinking. I know you're thinking, I'm better than her. I don't need to obey her. I don't what." Just say it. I felt invited to honesty out of that. I don't know if you saw the new movie, or, yeah, the newest remake, or it doesn't matter. If you've read the book or saw a, even a bad movie of Les Mis, um, you still get the message. And if you don't know the story, it's the story of uh, Jean Valjean, who was a prisoner for years in a French labor camp, pretty much, and he is let free. And while he is let free, he, he, um, 
um, you know, goes against uh, his parole. He does something that is going to renege his parole. And Javert, who was the prison guard, while he was in prison, is now the uh, police inspector of his town. And um, so Javert, because he broke his, you know, he had a parole violation, he's looking for him the rest of the movie. But Jean Valjean cannot turn himself in. Why? Because if he does, he knows he's going to go back to prison for the rest of his life. Do you understand that that is the nature of the law? The law is there to constrict and confine and show us where the boundaries are and then condemn us when we break it. And you cannot, your relationship, especially your marriage, cannot be bound by the law. Because the law is good for society, the law is good for a school, the law is good for a city, but the law is not good for a marriage in the sense that you're holding it over each other's head. The law kills relationship. Because of shame, you see, I need somebody who's going to invite me to something called grace. As sinners in relationship, especially the relationship of marriage, we need a soft landing. If we're going to come out of hiding, we have to have somebody, we have to believe that my spouse is somebody who understands grace. They know that they're a sinner and they know that God has loved them in spite of their sin. In fact, He sent His Son to die for them. And they're going to invite me to grace. It's going to be humiliating. It's going to, but she or he is not going to be the one who's going to hold it over my head and said, see, I've been waiting for you to fail and I knew you were a failure. Oh, that's what we want to do so much of the time. But that's not what marriage is about. Marriage, this side of the fall and this side of heaven, is to be a, a, a place that, that we land softly into the arms of somebody who says, I love you even though I know what you did. This is what being a helper suitable is all about. It's saying, you don't have to fear me. Tell me the worst, and I'll help you. I'm there for you. Your sin's not about me, it's about God. I'm inviting you to be naked and unashamed. This is why Jesus has to rule our marriage relationship and the partners in the relationship. That's what Paul is getting at in Ephesians chapter 5. He begins, before he says, Husbands, love your wives as Christ loves the church. Wives, submit to your husbands as to the Lord. He says this in, in Ephesians 5.21. All believers, is what he's saying, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. And then the very next word is, Husbands, love your, your wives as Christ loved the church. Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. In other words, the context for... Uh, uh, um, of marriage is a place in which we are both submitting to Christ. And what does that mean? It means that Christ is the one who knows everything about us and He says, I die for you, that I might have you as my bride. And so if I'm revering Christ, if I'm fearing Christ, that's what it means to fear Christ. It's to say, I submit to how you operate, and this is how you operate. I am righteous and holy, I'm the innocent part in the relationship. You sin, but I die and I give myself gladly for you. For the joy set before me, I endure the cross. And what's the joy set before me? Having you as, as my own in glory. And so that is how marriage has to operate. 
Tell me the worst about you. Come out of hiding. You see, uh, this is the question that we need to be asking ourselves. Are you inviting your husband or is the person that you're dating someone who's going to invite you to, to tell them the worst thing about you? And you're still going to be loved. Husbands and wives, if that's not your understanding of marriage, make it your understanding now. You hurt me so bad, I'm not talking to you. It's not about you. Yes, we've been hurt. But think about what the sin looks like to God. He had to send His own Son to be pierced for it. It's not about you. There is sin in the relationship, and I'm going to help you fight it. And it's killing me, and it's destroying me. But guess what? Here's the Gospel. I am your friend, even though you sin against me. Oh, that's what we're called to. That's what marriage is to be. And then the other question is, are you trusting your spouse to be like that? Because they're not going to be it perfectly. Are you coming out of isolation? Are you saying, this is who I am? There is power in isolation and hiding to allow our sin to grow and fester. Isolation and dishonesty go hand in hand. And it gets worse and worse. And what the other person is married to is a fake. And an image, somebody they don't even know. They think they know you, but they don't know you. And you know that, and that's, how, that's what you like, because you're controlling it. You think you're still in control. That's not what God has called us to. Are you opening your heart and saying, Honey, I need help. I need you. I need you. I'm struggling with this. Dear friends, that's what we're called to do. And confession does something. I don't understand it. It was, it was like that day. I experienced it this week and it was a small thing. You got me, honey. You're right. I got no defense. And you know what? I fear that the most, and yet there's intimacy. We're holding hands all of a sudden. Now, I don't mean this crass, but, well, let me just say it this way. Oftentimes in marriage, and in, oftentimes in marriage, the most intimate moment is right after a fight. You know why? I, I mean, married people will tell you that. You know why that is? Because you've been exposed, you've been seen, you've confessed, you've worked through it, and you've come to a resolution where both of you are saying, I know the worst about you and I still love you. And all of a sudden I say, I'm ready to do anything with you. You see it? That's what we're made for. We're made for vulnerability. We're made for intimacy. And that's where it is. So marriage is so much more about ministering and being ministered to than having our needs met. It's long-term rehab. I, I can't tell you how many people I've seen that get married, see the sin, see some serious sin in the life of their husband and wife, and then say, gosh, I must have made a mistake. No. You've entered rehab most of us think marriage is Genesis chapter 2, 24. No, Genesis chapter, uh, marriage is Genesis chapter 2, 24 meets Genesis chapter 3. And it's tough. Now, 
And then lastly, this is why marriage is love in a long and right direction. I love this. I mean, I was thinking all week about our whole idea of romanticism. I've watched a lot of chick flicks in my life because I have a wife and three daughters. And every one of them is predictable. I mean, two people that don't know each other, catch each other's eye, fall in love, then there's conflict, relationship about to go down, oh, it revives, there it is, everybody walks away happy and lives happily ever after. I mean, that is every chick flick on the planet, and we love it. Always resolution. Why? Because we found somebody perfect for us. No, marriage is love in a long and right direction. And it's more like this. Um, this is a better illustration, I think, for marriage than the chick flick side. Uh, this past week, I don't know, Monday or Tuesday was college football signing day. And um, it was interesting to watch the Ole Miss fans. Um, gosh, you're obnoxious, you know. <laughs> and now you're going to be more obnoxious because you have an incredible football coach and now you're going to have an incredible football team. And we're never going to hear the end of it, you know. Um, it's just going to be bad because you all are going to be good. And it's interesting to watch that Ole Miss fans, are, they're already celebrating as if they've won a game and these five top recruits hadn't even hit the campus yet. They hadn't even gone through spring training. They're still in high school. They're still going to their prom and thinking about their prom, and yet you have already won the national championship and the Heisman Trophy and every other award out there. Why? Because of your faith and your belief in the future. That if we work hard enough, if we sweat hard enough, if we go to the weight room long enough, if we go through enough pain, if we, if we stick it out, we're going to win. Now, why in that our marriage? You see, that is a better movie <laughs> because it's reality. It's more about the future than it is about today. It's celebrating the small victories. It's celebrating something just stupid as me being able to say, Honey, I didn't lock the front door. You're right, and I'm sorry. And I, I, I think maybe I've got it. Maybe I'll, I'll lock the door the next time. All right, honey, that's good. It's celebrating that. Sounds small unless you're married, right? <laughs> oh, I get it. That was good. Good, I want that. You see, we need a football program. Not some starry-eyed dream. Uh, as fallen human beings, we need the structure of covenant relationships. That's what a good coach does. He puts the structure there in place that if those in the midst of it will commit themselves to the structure, then success will be experienced. And that's what God does for us. That's what the roles are that we are going to talk about later. I promise you we're going to get there. But that's all it is. It's the structure. But you see, the structure is nothing unless you understand your need to submit to the structure. The hardest thing for a coach is to get the players to submit to the structure because you have a bunch of high school students who think they're the best football player that's ever played the game. 
And so the first day of practice, what do you do as a coach? You put a, the biggest senior you can on, the, on that freshman and you say, destroy him. So that he'll see at the end of the day, this is tougher than I thought and I need help. I better listen to coach. That's marriage. You're going to get knocked down. It doesn't mean you made a wrong choice. It just means you're married. And you're not dating. So submit yourself as a fallen sinner to the structure of God and believe a better day is coming. You see, we need the structure to kill the selfish us and create the more godlike us. Where is that? Philippians 2. In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, our husband, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. I love that translation. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant being made in human likeness. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death. Even death on a cross. Therefore God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, in heaven and on earth and under earth, and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. What is marriage? You die that somebody else might live. So that one day you might be exalted in relationship with Jesus. And you might even experience that as you see the other person flourishing. This collides with our modern perception of romance. But there is nothing more romantic. I tell you, the sexiest thing I've seen lately is this. I, was at, I saw the sexiest thing at Presbytery meeting. Now that's saying something, because Presbytery is all the churches coming together to visit the church. It's, if you want to define boring, it had nothing to do with Presbytery. It had every do, everything to do with a man by the name of John, who's in his late 70s, and his wife has Alzheimer's. And he is a leader in our Presbytery. He's a ruling elder. He's not a pastor minister. He's just a lay guy who is an elder in the church. And his wife has Alzheimer's uh, and dementia. They may be the same thing. I don't totally understand that. And about a year ago, he sold his house in East Memphis and moved to an assisted living place. Not because he needed it, but because his wife needed it. And this is a man who was in construction for years, highly successful. And you know what he's doing now? He's playing bridge at the assisted living place. With his mind, he thinks sharper than I do on most days. And when he brings her to Presbytery, and she's dressed and she has her makeup on, and he's not embarrassed when she says something that may be inappropriate or irrelevant. He just smiles and looks at her with love. And I'm telling you, that's the sexiest thing I've seen in a long time. And what it does is it exposes our idea of I'm in it as long as you serve me. It exposes the hookup mentality. exposes the casual sex mentality. It exposes the living together mentality. It exposes all of that as fake and as synthetic. It exposes it for what it is because that, my friends, is sexy. That's romantic. That's love. And it's what we're made for. 
And when that man dies, he's going to, heaven is not going to be that strange to him because he's going to be, he's going to say, you know what? It feels like my marriage. It feels like my marriage. It's a long road. I'll end with this. Paul David Tripp wrote a book entitled, What Did You Expect? It's a book on marriage. What did you expect? This is what he writes. Dealing with our guilt and shame is what the whole Bible is about. It's about redemption. That is pain of a debt of guilt and shame that needed to be paid. That payment was made on the cross. Jesus took our shame, hanging in public, numbered with the criminals. He took our guilt by taking our sin on himself and paying the price, death, the price of it, death. He did this even though he had no reason for either shame or guilt, because he was a perfect man. He did not do these things for himself, husbands. Every action in the whole process was substitutionary. It was done for us. Why? So guilt and shame would not hold us. So that in the courage of celebratory faith, we would quit hiding, quit excusing, quit blaming, and quit rising to our own defense. So that we could be unafraid of saying, you're right, I was wrong, and I need your forgiveness. So that we could say, I know I blew it last night, but I'm committed to doing better. So that we could say to one another, I need your help. I don't always see myself accurately. If you see something wrong in me, I welcome you to come help me see it as well. So that we could look at our marriages and not declare that they are perfect. This is beautiful. But celebrate the fact, over the years, we have taken many important steps closer to what God has called us to be and has designed our marriages to become. Dear friends, we're not going to have a perfect relationship, but as we submit ourselves to God in the midst of it and believe and and drink of His love for us, we can give it to another person. May that be our image of marriage. And dear friends, may we go do it. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank You that You're not just an example to us of love, But you really are our husband. You are loving us right now in this way. And you are our strength and power to love another person when we think we can't. So God, do the impossible. Make us great lovers. Long-sighted lovers. Father, give us the courage to enter relationships and to die for another person. Believing that your love is powerful enough to get us there. Lord God, we thank You so much that we can believe that that Your love is the power to do it and You're not going to leave us alone because we are in a covenant relationship with You. And You tell us, I will never leave You nor forsake You. Even when you feel lonely, I've not left. Even when you think you're alone, I haven't left. Just look. Just wait. Just hope. Just trust. So Father, I thank You that that's Your love for us. May we live out of it. And may we love each other in the church and in our marriages. Oh God, would you bless us? We need you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.